Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Oh, that was it. I pulled it. I'm sorry. Man, I'm glad to be in front of you guys today. I'm glad to be with you. I don't know of a better way to start a service than to, to baptize. That's just exciting. Um, man, that's, that fires me up. I was standing over there, just kind of twitching with adrenaline. Just excited. Excited. And so, thank you. All right. So we're in John chapter 3, so if you've got your Bible, open up to John chapter 3. On our way to church today, Miles said, Dad, what are you preaching? And I said, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And he said, it's like the first verse everybody learns. Like, well, normally. And I said, Miles, to my knowledge, I don't know that I've ever preached a whole sermon on it. I said, I've given a lot of devotions over John 3.16, but I've never preached a sermon on this passage, and specifically have never done it at Advent. So, it's going to be something. All right, are you ready? All right, John 3.16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Amen, somebody? There was a great theologian one day was asked a question. He said, of all the truths, all the spiritual truths that you've ever heard in your life, of all of the things that stand out to you, what is the most significant theological truth you've ever heard? And he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Wow. Amen. Let's sit down. All right. Uh, here, so today I want to show you three activities based on, grounded in, rooted in the love of God in this passage. Two verses. I want to show you three activities of how God's love is on display for you and for me to see at Christmas time. I want you to see God's love today. And I want you to know that He loves you. Not just a little, but a lot. You say, well, Ryan, you don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you did to know that God loves you desperately and dearly. Now, we're going to look at this verse just little by little. For God so loved. Can we get the words on the screen up there, Mr. James? Everything okay? He 
He's coming. All right, here we go. For God so loved. For God so loved. Now, that idea of so can mean two things. Two things. One is the extent of which he loves us. That he loved us so much. I remember one of the first truths that I ever learned. I, I carried this little card around in my wallet as a teenager. That a little child walked up to uh, God or to Jesus actually and said, Jesus, how much do you love me? And he, he said, this much. And he spread out his arms and he died. He said, I love you this much. And so this so much can be the extent of which God's love is shown to us. Or rather, it could be, other, it could be the example. He loved the world in this way. Now, some versions will actually translate this verse. God loved the world in this way that he sent and so today, I want you, whether it's the extent or the example, doesn't really matter. It could be both. It could be that he loves you so much that he showed the example of this. He loved you in this way to show his great love for you. But three activities that are rooted in God's love, he loved the world so much that. Okay? In this passage, there are three that's and a four. Three that's and a four. So if we're studying God's word, we need to see these. God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the first activity that I want you to see in this passage is the activity of the incarnation. Now, that's a big fancy theological word that I don't use a whole lot other than in church. But the incarnation is a form of two Latin words, in, and I'll give you a guess. What does the word in mean in Latin? You guys are scholars. Way to go. In means in. Carne. Carne means what in Latin? Flesh. And so this idea of incarnation is in the flesh. We see the incarnation, incarnate, in flesh, that God left heaven and came to earth in flesh. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, let's clarify a couple things. Number one, clarification is the incarnation does not mean that God was born. It does not mean that God was born. Rather, the incarnation is when the eternal God, who has always existed, took on humanity and dwelt among us. I want us to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at three verses, verse 9, verse 14, and verse 17. It says in verse 9, but we see him, this is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He was made for a little while a little lower than angels. This is the incarnation that we see. And then verse 14, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's children like you and me, that's all those that God has created, since all of his creation share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That means Jesus, the creator of all things, put on flesh and blood. This goes on that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is so much theology in that one verse right there. But what I want you to see is the incarnation. Then in verse 17 it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. 
He had to be made. Now that's an important phrase, that it was necessary. He must. He has to. It cannot happen without this taking place. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is creation. He had to take on flesh and blood so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, some people, sometimes we wrongly think that Jesus, while he was on earth, was less than God. So like when he was in heaven, he was fully God. And then when he came to earth, he was less than God and only a man. And that is not true. It's not true that some of us, sometimes we think that Jesus left his godness, his divinity in heaven. And when he took on flesh, he was just a man. But let's be clear. When God took on flesh, he did not lose his divinity. Rather, he added humanity to his already pre-existent divinity. In other words, he was fully God and fully man. If I were to do percentage, I'm not a math guy, but if I were to do percentages, he was 100% God and 100% man, which made him 100% an all-sufficient Savior. He could not have done what he did if he was less than fully man or less than fully God. He was fully God and fully man. The incarnation of Jesus is the greatest display of God's love. God loved the world so much that he sent He sent his only son. He gave his only son. That is the incarnation right there. It's the greatest display of his love. That just, just sit on this. That a holy God, the creator of all things, would set aside his glory and condescend to you and to me. Now, a lot of times we don't like the word condescend because condescend sounds condescending. And of course... God would not be condescending to us in the way that we use condescending. But here's what I want you to hear. The greater God took on the form of the lesser. The greater came to the lesser, took on the lesser form to be with us in the mess that we created for ourselves. Now that is huge. That God was up in heaven seeing the sin of the world. And he didn't say, well, y'all got your mess, yourself into this mess. You now figure it out. You made your bed, lie in it. Rather, the greater God himself came in flesh to come and be the solution to a problem that he didn't cause. That's good news. He came not simply to exist in this chaos the mess, but to become a solution to the self-created chaos of humankind. He came down to us to be with us. Jesus took on flesh. Incarnation. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus had to become like us in the flesh in order to save us from our sinful flesh. Here, Listen to this quote. Listen to this quote. A thousand times in history has a baby become a king to rule the nations. But only one time in history has a king become a baby to save the nations.
A thousand times in history has a baby become a king to rule the nations, but only one time in history has the king become a baby to save the nations. Church family, listen to me out there. The incarnation is one of the greatest displays of God's love. The incarnation is rooted and grounded in the love of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. How did He give Him? He gave Him in the flesh. He gave Him in the flesh. The incarnation, this is it. We celebrate it at Christmas. The incarnation is rooted in His love, but the incarnation doesn't stop in a manger. It does us no good to sing songs about the manger, to remind our children a baby in a manger. If that baby did not become something different, something more, something else other than a baby, we would still be dead in our sins. But I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, and I want to look at the idea of propitiation. So we've got incarnation, which means incarnate, in the flesh, the second idea, second activity of God is the activity of propitiation. Look at Hebrews 2.17. says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, we don't use that word very much, do we? Propitiation. We, I use it regularly in preaching because I don't want to dumb down God's Word for His people. I want to raise God's people up to God's Word. I want to see us mature in Christ's likeness. And so we're going to look at this big old word called propitiation and dive into it. So in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that... Whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting, eternal life. The question is, why in the world are people perishing? Why in the world are people perishing? Now, just if you've ever read any of the Bible, you learn that there's some really beautiful parts of the Bible, and you learn that there's some really messy parts of the Bible, Amen. All of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament also have a story, don't they? Peter, I will build my church on, on uh, this rock, Peter, that you just made. And Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of death in Hades. And then right after that happens, Peter denies that Jesus is going to die. And, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Each one of these people has a messy side, too. And we learn very early in the Bible that God created it perfectly. He created for mankind to love Him, to worship Him, to dwell with Him, to be in fellowship with Him, to walk with Him. And that's why we sing the song, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me I'm His own. Why do we sing that song? Because that's how we were created to live with God. We were created to know Him face to face. The Bible says in um, chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 27, I believe it is, that man and woman were naked before God and unashamed. That's how we were created to live with God, naked and to be unashamed before Him. Can you just imagine having nothing to hide from a holy God? That's how we were created. But in Genesis chapter 3, sin comes in and sin ruins what God designed and from Genesis chapter 3, you see 
you see a shame come into an unshamed, unashamed world. You see separation from God. You see death enter into the picture. You see marital strife. In Genesis chapter 3, it's her fault. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. In Genesis chapter 4 and 5, you hear about how the, the sinfulness of humanity expands from one generation to the next generation to the next generation until they have rebelled against God. That in Genesis chapter 6, God says, I'm done with this creation. I regret that I've made it, and I'm going to destroy it, and I'm going to start over with a man named Noah. Sin has caused a problem for you and for me that we can't fix And that is why people are perishing. Romans chapter 6 says this, verse 23, The wages of sin is death. It's death. The wage is the payment that I deserve for the action that I commit. And I don't have to convince you, I don't think, that we're sinners. Now, if you're out there and you say, Well, my sin's not as bad as their sin, we've got the wrong comparison. We got the wrong standard. I can always find somebody that I'm better than. Amen? There was that Unabomber that one time. At least I'm not as bad as the Unabomber, right? I can always find somebody worse off than I am to compare myself to, to justify myself. But when I look in the mirror of God's holy word and God's perfect character, when I look into that mirror and that standard, guess what? I always fall short. And God says, compared to me, you're a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin caused us to be covered with shame, separated from God's mercy, and under God's eternal condemnation deserving death. And the incarnation is the beginning of God's solution to to that problem. The incarnation is the means of God's propitiating work. What in the world is propitiation then? Propitiation is a very fancy term for the process of appeasing God's divine justice and wrath. God is a good God. In Him there is no flaw. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not, Thy compassions they fail not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. There's no flaw in Him. Now as a good God, He's a good judge. He's a good judge of character. He's a good judge of actions. And a good judge must give just renderings of justice. Amen? I want you to imagine that I'm driving down the road and I'm late. Anybody imagining that with me? It doesn't take you much to imagine that. You're late somewhere. I'm late. I'm driving down the road. I'm in a hurry. Um, I'm getting a, a phone call. And I'm trying to deal with my phone in my hand. And I'm not even paying attention. And I blow by... A school zone. And on the way through, I run over a child. I know it's heavy. My wife just looked at me and said, maybe a little too far. I'm rolling with it. I'm already in too deep, guys. Police officer comes and he gets me. 
He takes me off to jail. I go, I wait my time to stand before a judge. And I want you to imagine the judge says, what's your story, Mr. Perry? You were speeding through a school zone and this child is now no longer with us because of you. What's your story? And I said, listen, judge, I was having a bad day. I was late and my phone was ringing and I was just trying to answer my phone and get to my appointment on time. I didn't mean it. And the judge looks at me and he goes, oh, well, we've all had bad days. Listen, Mr. Perry, don't do that again. Now go home. Is that a good judge? A bad judge. He's a bad judge, isn't he? You wouldn't say, hooray, justice has been accomplished. You would say, that judge needs to lose his job and be buried under the jail. <laughs> How much more is it important that God be a good judge? Well, can't God just forgive? What's the answer to that question? No. He can't just forgive, because if He just forgave us, He would cease to be a good God. When I sin against a holy God, there is justice that must be given for my crime against divinity. There is wrath from God at my sin. And the idea of propitiation is that I know what I have coming to me. I know the punishment that I deserve. I know the wrath that is being stored up for my sin. And I've only got one way out. And there's nothing I can do. Propitiation means that God did something through Jesus to appease His divine wrath and justice on my behalf. That's what the word propitiation means. 1 John 4.10 says it this way. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God. Now I just need, you to, I need to get that out of here, out here this morning. Nobody in this room has ever been saved because of their amount of love for God. It says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. He first loved us. How much? So much that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That Jesus came to be the means by which God's divine wrath and mercy would be poured out to such a degree that the sinner could go free because of the Son's propitiation. Do you see it? What is the propitiation then? Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and in Mark chapter 14, Jesus prayed a prayer. He said, Father, all things are possible for you. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What was the cup? 
The cup in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's divine wrath. It's a symbol of judgment. And it's almost like in that moment, I want you to imagine this with me, the, the, the night before Jesus would be crucified, that God shows Jesus just a glimpse over the brim of the cup of God's wrath that is filled to the top with justice and judgment. And he says to Jesus in those moments, Jesus Tomorrow, you're going to drink this cup of my wrath dry until it's gone. Can you now understand why Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, this cup of wrath, this cup of judgment, let it pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. There on the cross, Jesus is dying. He's been tortured and all of these things, and now he is dying on the cross. And one of the last things that Jesus says is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? It was because, in fact, God had forsaken him. Why would God forsake his only son that he sent? God forsook the Son so that He wouldn't have to forsake you. Isaiah 53 says it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was God's will to crush His Son. Why? So that we might not be crushed. He died in our place. The wages of sin is death. Who deserved that death? I did. Who got that death? Jesus did. Jesus got my wage so that he might give me his. That's propitiation. That there on the cross, God poured out the full amount of his wrath on his son so that we might be saved from it. And the last thing that Jesus said was, it is, and it was. God so loved the world that He gave the incarnation, His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You say, Ryan, this doesn't feel like a Christmas message. The Christmas message is not about a baby in a manger. It's about a baby who lived a sinless life and became a, a sinner substitute and died on the cross in our place. That's the message of Christmas is that there was a gift wrapped up in swaddling cloths in a manger. Do you know what the swaddling cloths were? They were used for the sacrificial animal. Swaddling cloths in a manger were used for the animal that would be sacrificed there on the altar of God to appease the wrath of God for a family. And Jesus is wrapped in swaddling cloths. Why? To be laid in a manger as our Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. John Newton, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, he says this, listen to him. When I was young, I was sure of many things. Now there are only two things of which I'm sure. One is that I'm a miserable sinner. And the other, that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well taught who learns these two lessons. And then listen to what he says. May we sit at the foot of the cross and there learn what sin has done, what justice has done, 
and what love has done. So we see incarnation, we see propitiation, and we see salvation. John chapter 3 verse 17 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, see that that, in order that, it's the purpose of the, the Son being sent into the world is not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The world might be saved through Him. I want you to know at Christmas time, we celebrate that Jesus came to save the world. He came to be the Savior, as John Newton said, the all-sufficient Savior for miserable sinners. Let me tell you, Jesus will be as beautiful as you understand yourself as being a sinner. So the more you see the depth of your sin, the greater you will see the beauty of God's Savior. So if I think I'm a pretty good dude, I'm not going to think very highly of Jesus. But when I think, when I understand the depth of my personal sin, I'm going to see the beauty of the cross. I'm going to see how much I need a Savior and how Jesus is that Savior for me. He said, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through Him. Listen, the world was condemned already. Jesus came to do something about it. I was condemned already. Jesus came to do something about it. Are you with me? If you're out there and you think you're good, Jesus says, you're condemned already. But I came to save you. He came to grant salvation that I would be saved from my own worst enemy, me. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow, slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Aren't you glad that the Lord is patient toward you? Church family, sometimes we're guilty of saying, I would just wish Jesus would come back right now. I think we need to be reminded that God wants to be as patient with them as He is, has been with you. If He came back right now, there would be billions of people condemned. He does, he, he does not want that. It says, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His desire is for His salvation to go to every heart. And to every mind. So as I wrap this up, I want to give three little quick application points. As we look at the love of God incarnate in the flesh. As we look at the propitiation of God and the salvation of God. All as examples of His love. There are two groups of people in here. And only two. There, there are those who are saved by the blood of Jesus. And there are those who are not. And if you are not, the love of God should lead you to salvation. Hear me real fast. If, 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 if you're out there and you think you're saved because there was a time in your life that you heard a message about going to hell and you said, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to pray this prayer, and you're afraid of God, that is not a motivation for salvation.
the love of God is. God loves you so much. Would you come to him? The love of God leads us to salvation. Some of you out there, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior because you think you're, you've got it all together. You think you don't need a Savior. You think you're A-OK. And let me just tell you, according to the Bible, we're not OK. We're so not OK that God took on flesh to die for us. That's a big deal. Secondly, the love of God leads to rest. The love of God leads to rest. St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, however you want to say it, in his book Confessions at the end of the third or the end of the fourth century, he wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until, it's fi- until it finds its rest in thee. The love of God leads us to rest. I want to hear my example here. Uh, have you ever had a good day? Amen. You've had a good day where all things went well. Have you ever had a bad day? Okay, I got more amens on that one. Uh, now, here's the love of God and how it affects my life. Here's how the salvation of God affects my life. That God, uh, when, when I have the best day ever, and I wake up on time and I do my quiet time in the morning, and, and I love my family and I speak kindly to them, and and I pray for my family, and I lead them in quiet time and devotion, and, and, and uh, we get off to school, and people come into the, the church office, and I, I'm, I'm, I love them, and I, I shepherd them, and all of those things, and the day goes well, and I, I'm faithful to preaching God's Word. When all that day is great, and I lay my head down on my pillow, the salvation of God, the love of God says that God doesn't love me anymore on my good days than he does on my bad days. That sounds backward, doesn't it? Well, on my bad days, when I wake up late, I hit the snooze button on my alarm 37 times, and I'm flying out of bed, and I'm running downstairs, and I'm yelling at my family, and I skip my quiet time, and I don't pray for anybody, and I'm barking at people, All day long, I'm just in a funk, and I lay my head down on my pillow, and I'm just bitter about life. Listen to me. Because of God's love and His salvation, He does not love me any less than He does on my good days. The love of God, God's salvation says that your good days don't make Him love you any more than He already does, and your bad days don't make Him love you any less than He already does. Isn't that good? He loves you because He loves you. He loves us despite us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Paul Washer says it this way. He says, I've given Christ a thousand reasons. He says, I've given Christ countless reasons not to love me. And none of them has changed his mind. It should lead us to rest. To rest That my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. When I preach the best sermon ever, my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. When I botch a sermon, my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. When I feel like I got my sin life together, my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And when I'm sinning out the wazoo, my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. 
I can rest, not in my works, but in Jesus's. Should lead me to rest. Our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. So it should lead us to salvation, it should lead us to rest, and lastly, it should lead us to action. The love of God leads us to action. Rest and action. Did you see that? Sounds like a paradox or a contradictory statement. It's not. Here's what I mean. My rest is that I don't have to work for God's love. My actions are, in fact, that I work from God's love. I don't work so that God will love me. I work because God loves me. I don't work so that God will save me. I work because God saved me. I am active. I rest I rest in His finished work. I work through the power of His Holy Spirit so that His kingdom might come upon the whole world. That the promise in 2 Peter 3, 9 says He wants everyone, He doesn't want a single person to perish, but all to reach repentance so that that promise might come true. John Newton, just to mention him again, John Newton says Christ has taken our nature into heaven to represent us before the Father, and God has left us on earth with His nature to represent Him to the world. We have a great, sufficient Savior. Can I get a witness to that? And now there's a mission. We got a task. And the task is not church stuff. The task is kingdom stuff. The task is gospel stuff. The task is there are people dying and going to hell condemned apart from God. The task is that people need the only hope and the only way and the only truth and the only life, Jesus. And God, in His sovereignty, for some weird reason, has said, you know what I'm going to do? The way that I'm going to reach the world is through the church. You sure that was a good idea? Yes, I'm sure. It should lead us to activity, to action. Lottie Moon says it this way. Lottie Moon, we're, we're celebrating the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It's an offering for missions all around the world that every dollar that you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes to support international missionaries and their work across the globe to see the lost saved and the dead raised and those who are separated from God united to Him by faith in Jesus. She says it like this, How can I not speak when I know the words of life? How can I not speak when I know the words of life? I'll close with a Spurgeon quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap, leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. It's the church's task to be the warner, the prayer, the proclaimer. Our mission is to declare the gospel, to disciple the, the believer, and to deploy 
the church in order to help every person become a more devoted disciple of Jesus. We've got an all-sufficient Savior, and we've got a task at which His church ought to be about. Let us in these days not get sidetracked with lesser things. On, on Friday, Christmas Eve, we have a service. Four o'clock in the afternoon. Four o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to gather, we're going to have a candlelight service, and we're going to do our darndest not to burn the church down with candles, okay? So pray on that one. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I'm going to share the gospel. And so, you go, I don't know how to tell people about Jesus. Well, the least you can do is invite them to church. But I know the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And I know what He's empowered you to do when you trust Him. You can do it. You can share the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. God so loved the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love on display in the incarnation, in your propitiation through Jesus, your son, and in the salvation that he offers by which he's, we say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no other name. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Father, thank you for your great love on display. Father, my, my prayer for people in this room today is, A, that we would learn to trust in your plan of salvation, Jesus, your Son. If there are people in here who are lost and don't know where they would go to spend an eternity, I pray, Father, that you would lead them to yourself and save them by your grace as they trust you. And Father, I also pray for us who know Jesus that you would help us to be about your mission. That we might see people, the lost found, the dead raised. All because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help, help, us, help us to rest in your salvation and to be active because of it. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and the church said... Amen. Would you stand with me?